Harry, get that thing off the console. Shoot. Sputters! Now look what you've done. Four grown adults who should probably know better. From four grown adults who are stuck in lockdown. We're not afraid to say it like it is. Or the word bollocks. www.dirtyhoors.com Follow us on Facebook at Dirty Hoors. If you like that kind of thing. We're also on Twitter. Deal with it. Fantastic. L on C. Is this where I say cock? With your hosts. Number one assistant, Sherry Lightfoot. Oolong, Sputters, Sputnik. Tardis Kitty, Miss Cubby. Lord President, Sam. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's another Dirty Hose Doctor Who podcast. We have somebody joining us this time who is very likely to become a very regular person. I'd like to introduce Miss Tabby. Hello. The usual gang is here. Sam. Hi, everyone. Lightfoot. Hello. And this time we're looking at Doctor Who and the Silorians. Unusual in itself because it actually uses the words Doctor Who in the title. I think there's only a couple that do. Just one. Just one. Mm, yeah. Also slightly topical as it contains a virus. Doctor Who and the Silorians is from 1970. John Pertwee, obviously. Caroline John. What an amazing parallax Caroline John has. I'm sorry, but she really <laughs> does. And there's loads of faces in it. There's loads of sort of BBC faces like Fulton Mackay and Nida's in it and people like that. And of course, Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier. What's the name of the guy from Blake 7? Oh, Paul Darrow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Very young Paul Darrow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. recognise him, yeah. Directed by Timothy Combe, who also, he didn't mind of evil. So uh, if you want to know about our rating system, just Google Dirty Hoers rating system. That won't get you in trouble at all. And because <laughs> we really can't be asked explaining it this time and we've far too much to crack on with. We've just done a new intro and all that kind of crap. So, you know, bear with us. I'm going to give this... I'm going to give this $20. I'm going to give this $20. I'm going to take her out in town and we're going to hit a couple of galleries. And I'm going to buy her a piece of art that's going to increase in value over the years. So when she becomes old and jaded and a little bit wrinkled and isn't worth as much cash, she's still got that piece of art to fall back on. Jesus Christ, you really liked it. <laughs> um, I give it a $10. I don't know. I wasn't that excited about it except for the very end. So that's it. No tip from me. 20 because we are if I recall, rating these against others of the era. And this is John Pertwee. I mean, if this were if this were a new series episode, I think it'd be $75. <laughs> but 20 with a generous tip. I really enjoyed it. I would go for 20 and probably, I don't know, a couple of slices of cake or something as well. This is television science fiction at its best. Yes. And I mean science fiction. 
you know, we haven't regularly podcasted in a long time. And I think we all had our breaking points with the new series. And with me, it was when Stephen Muffet did an, an interview. And when asked about, I'm glad I forgot what, he said, well, Doctor Who is fantasy. Oh, no, it's, it's the quintessential science fiction. And there were a couple of scientific missteps in this, the biggest one being the title itself. The Silurian era actually was so long ago it didn't have any land animals on Earth. <laughs> this should have been named something like the Cretaceous Monsters. The problem with topical science fiction is that as the human race progresses, our scientific knowledge broadens. Yeah. And that whole bit, I'd just like to take the whole thing where they said the Silurians who went into hibernation when the moon came into orbit and change it to the Cretaceous monsters who went into hibernation before the asteroid hit. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, the whole premise, if you look at Earth's timeline, there's nine million years between the evolution of the Velociraptor and the extinction of the dinosaurs. That is more than enough time for an entire intelligent civilization to evolve, rise, and fall. More than enough. Mm. So scientifically speaking, aside from a couple of minor terminology slip-ups here and there, there is nothing about this episode that isn't completely scientifically feasible. Very unlikely, yes, but feasible. And it's absolutely brilliant. The exploration of culture and the can these races coexist, you know, stupid apes, which of course, another scientific slip-up, there were no apes back then, but... They played a little fast and loose with scientific accuracy, but the premise is sound. And when you take a great cast and combine it with something that's scientifically intriguing, that's perfection for sci-fi TV, I think. The only reason I didn't give it a 50 is because when compared against other episodes in the John Pertwee era, that perfect cast cohesion wasn't there yet. Oh. And while our main characters were very well acted, some of the supporting characters were really over the top. Timothy Combe did much better work in The Mind of Evil than he did this one. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah there were some acting inconsistencies. The script was brilliant. You know, for the technology they had, they did a really good job with costuming and makeup and things like that at the time. But, I mean, when you look at some of the later Pertwees, they were just smooth, start mm. to finish. I mean, the Damons... I watched your demons recently and it's so tight. Television oh. perfection is so good. So no, I, and you know, I wasn't really joking. If this script were to show up in the Jodie Whittaker era, this would be far and above the best thing we've seen in years. Oh and, and seven episodes as well, but it cracks along. It doesn't feel like seven episodes. You know, I watched it over four days. I sat down and watched the first three episodes in one sitting and had to stop myself because I was afraid it was going to drag. So I was going to only watch one episode a day. And I was through episode three before I went, oh, fuck that. I should stop. This is followed by Ambassador to Death, and that's slow as fuck. Oh, yeah. That was nowhere near. And, and Spearhead from Space was only four. It snapped right along. Mm. Spearhead from Space was Pertwee's first. This is them straight out of the gate. I know. You know he's building Bessie at this time, really, isn't he? I know, oh. right? You know, I absolutely love Joe Grant. I adore the character. I adore the actress. Mm. But Liz Shaw was brilliant in every way. 
She yeah. does, the thing about Liz Shore is she's a scientist. Yes. You know, and they really play that science thing. At the time, great for girls. They threw her in a frumpy outfit when she went down into the caves, and it didn't matter. I mean, she's absolutely gorgeous no matter what, mm. and brilliant, and will just give the doctor shit at the drop of a hat. Perfect. Really, just perfect. And what's interesting is that with her in the room, it's almost like the brigadier took a bit of a back seat. He had not come into his own yet, and he kind of filled that foil role a little bit better when Joe Grant came in. Well, none of them have really found their feet yet. I mean, he literally hires her. He sits down at her desk and interviews her in Spearhead from Space, you know? Yes. Well, the characters haven't quite found their footing yet, except Pertwee. And, and if you've ever seen him in person, it's because he's not acting. Yeah, Pertwee plays Pertwee. Yeah. <laughs> in the same way Tom Baker plays Tom Baker. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's just them. And I, and I suppose most of the doctors have done that. I mean, there are a few caricatures, but for the most part, I think most of the actors that have played the doctor just walk in and read the lines. Yeah. By and large, you know, and that's what makes it so believable and so brilliant. Walk in, read the lines, Sylvester. You can go home now, play your spoons on the bus. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I loved it. For seven episode story, it was just fun to watch. It was so well done. For me, the thing that stood out in this story was the Doctor. As somebody who's persevered with the the modern series, this was just like a breath of fresh air. I mean, starting off with him reading Jabberwocky, well, reciting Jabberwocky, was just perfect because it really sets the tone for him being kind of learned but kind of weird and just stuff like when he's being strangled and he was just really calm and gentlemanly about the whole thing. (laughs) He was wearing his cape and the rest of his lovely outfit. I'll try not to panegyrize about him too much, but it was a good look, you have to don't, admit. Don't you have oh, a bit yes. of a thing for his son? I have a bit of a thing for him, a bit of a thing for his son. I have a bit of yeah. a thing for a lot of people. But... Ladies and gentlemen, you might remember some time ago I said that somebody had sent me a picture, which was so extreme <laughs> that I couldn't post it to the Dirty Horse channel. It was Tabby that sent it, and it involved Pertwee's son. Well, you know, I like to keep you on your toes. But I thought, compare him with some of the other characters, like the director with his cheap suit and his comb over. I thought the costuming worked really nicely. And you take one look at the director, don't you, when you realise that this man is destined to die. Okay, we're just waiting for him to die now. And when he comes up with lesions all over his face and his pockets square a mess, it's just comedy gold. As well as being enjoyable, it was humorous, but without being completely over-the-top ridiculous. I liked the way the Doctor shoved his way into Dr. Quinn's house with charm and aplomb and then Mm -hmm. creepily was hanging around by the window. With the Brigadier, I've not seen an awful lot of the Brigadier. You will. (laughs) Yes, you will. You need to. I enjoyed the dynamics between them. He's trying to talk to Miss Dawson about Dr. Quinn and the Brigadier comes bursting in and Pertwee was just, I mean, you say he plays himself. That annoyance was palpable and Mm -hmm. really relatable. I enjoyed how the Doctor wasn't about the fighting suggested by the soldiers actually reminded me of comments you made on a previous podcast I think it was about listen or something about how the doctor hates soldiers and the ending of this particular story and I don't know if we're looking at why not I'm going to say knocked marks off then I'm (laughs) in teacher mode but I thought that he was a bit high-handed you know when he's agreeing this treaty thing for the humans and the Silurians I, Mm. I couldn't see that working and I think the ending reinforces that idea. Oh, I did enjoy the Brigadier commenting on how many old white guys there are in London. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, can 
consider the number of men in London who look more or less like him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that whole thing, Tabby, with him just negotiating this treaty was very Time Lord-esque. Yeah. While he was doing it, I was still getting this sinking feeling of, oh, Lord, this isn't going to end very well. Um, right. The other costuming thing I like was when he's <gasps> on his back in a sweaty white T-shirt. I mean, that, that's oh, awesome. yeah. Flash of the something quite, quite appealing about that. Okay, guys, the tattoo... <laughs> Where have we seen it? First episodes for Hidden Space and also the Corsair. Yes, the Corsair, right. The Doctor's wife. Yes. But it's his, his, his actual unit, isn't it? It's his Navy unit tattoo, I believe. Because he was some kind of crazy spy, wasn't he? He was the uh, yes. Ministry of... Turns out he was, was going to say. Spy. Yeah, I was going to say Ministry of Silly Walks, but it wasn't Ministry of... Dirty Tricks, that's it. I mean, come on, the guy was a fucking legend, wasn't he? God love him. Absolutely. You know, I still managed to find myself shocked by the ending, even though I knew that it was going to happen. But it reinforces to you that this state-sanctioned genocide, uh, it shows why he is so anti-authority. And because when you see the decisions that are taken, so that resonated. But I enjoyed Liz as well. She was great. I liked, like you said, the emphasis on her intelligence, although she was in the obligatory miniskirt get-up. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and when she was on all fours talking to the doctor underneath Bessie, they had to <laughs> position the shot really carefully so her head was in the way and you <laughs> couldn't see anything that you didn't want to see or that you did want to see as the case may be but um, no I enjoyed her scientific know-how and the way she stood up for herself and you know for like the that. time doctor who always led when it came to things like that I mean yeah. from Liz Shaw to Sarah Jane I think there's a certain type of doctor who found that learned a lot from that mm. a certain type who grew up in that era and is now my generation and has that deeper respect for their fellow man and the diversity of their fellow man I yeah think. i can see that certainly finally i guess the only thing really i thought i could do without was the sound their heads made when the red lights <laughs> oh, were on that was oh. wearing kind of thin by the last <laughs> episode i thought uh-huh. really if that's the only complaint you can make then not doing too badly I don't think the BBC Radiophonics workshop did some marvellous work and there was a lot of experiments when it came to music within Doctor Who but there is no place in the world for experimental kazoo music (laughs) there is not and believe it or not that's actually a big reason I didn't give this a 50 was because of the fucking experimental kazoo music Yes. Now I feel bad because I gave it a low rating. But <laughs> Good. So you should. But I don't know. I, I don't think I was in the mood for it because I remember liking it much more the first time I, well, the first time, the last time, <laughs> the last time I saw it. How many times have you seen it? You've got to have seen it at least five times. Sure. Yeah. Quite yeah. a few. I don't I've sat and watched it with you. I think it's funny when people are counting how many times they've seen it. It's like, really? What's the point anymore? Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I noticed, well, I really like Liz Shaw. I like her as a character a lot, as a companion. I like the more proactive companions because they're not that common. You know, usually it's a healthy doctor kind of girl. And I like that she forms this really good intelligence team with the mm. doctor and that they're very cooperative and into the teamwork and everything and they bounce off of each other giving each other information and help and she understands where he's coming from and where his train of thought is going even though she still has questions and stuff 
And it distresses me when other characters in this story are like questioning the use of her. I can't remember the specific scene. Yeah, and like, yet they never question the use of Joe. And why is Joe there? Yeah, they were asking why she was doing something. And I'm like, she's a fucking doctor and she's super intelligent. And like, what is your problem? That's the part where I was like, okay, so this is just the sexism of the time going, oh my God, it's a working woman. What the fuck? What do we do with this? You know, but that's and realistic isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess, you know, I was still a teenager in the 70s. So I, I don't know what it was really like. But my mom was, you know, super accomplished doctor and everything. So I never thought about that until I got older. Mm. I had a pretty good example of a proactive go getter as a mom. So when I saw that in the story, it was just like, really, I wanted to punch those guys. I think that's why they do that, though, to act as a counterpoint. Because yeah, in many okay. ways, them acting as a counterpoint highlights the fact that she has got a brain. That okay. she, you know, when he's got his test tubes out and stuff like that. And she also leaves at the end of this season. We never see her leave. And the punchline is, well, she did say anybody can hold your test tubes for you. And she felt pointless. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. but And, and I understand that that's why they threw that in. But it seemed so over the top. I mean, those people are professionals. It just... It was the 70s already. I, I just kind of felt like they should have gone over it by then. There were women working in the 60s and stuff. Maybe um, that's a bit of army mentality as well then. I don't yeah, know. I, yes. that. I liked that the Brig wasn't the doctor's best friend yet. Mm. I liked that he was a little bit more of the antagonist, you know, questioning a lot more what the doctor was doing. And I agree with uh, Tabby about the whole thing when the doctor is negotiating, you know it's not going to work out. He's being all idealistic and stuff because he's a time lord for him he's over this problem he's, this is a very primitive problem for him he's just like you guys can work this out but he's also like, i think with our modern eyes there's a sense of he's right and therefore this is never going to work yeah. <laughs> yeah it's too good it, of an idea it, yeah. it just points out the primitiveness of the human from his perspective it should be an easy problem to resolve they don't really need to shoot each other or hurt each other if they just talk it'll be great everything will be hunky-dory you know mm. but that's just not going to happen and you know it's just not going to happen because of current events and that, when I say current events, I mean in the 70s. You know, it's not going to happen. And I did very much enjoy the ending. I just love the ending. I love that last line. You know, I, I think the fact that the doctor was so disappointed and so full of sadness or sorrow, the way that the whole thing worked out at the very end when he's watching that explosion, he's just like, oh, what the fuck? This is terrible. And I think that reinforces the message. And also, he lost. He did not win. He did not resolve the situation. He didn't win. Not everybody lives. And that was pretty uh, brave for a story mm. for kids back mm. then. You know, he's supposed to be the hero. I think they got more into the, the notion that it was a family show around here, less than it was a kid's show. I think they'd done a bit of research, done a bit of thinking, and it's Malcolm Hulk and Terrence Dix. It's Barry Letts producing it. This sort of era was very much more, I think, a family show than a kid's show. And that's something that's happened with the modern stuff, is it seems to have gone back to being a kid's show, and then occasionally tries to remind us it's a family show and it doesn't really work. In general, I just found... Maybe because it's old, etc. I just found some of the back and forth a little tedious. Although there were a lot of changes in the environment, you know, it went from this mm. to that to a virus story. And that helped make it less tedious. But still, I don't know, because it was so predictable for me, I was just kind of like, okay, I know where this is going. 
Well, you had watched it before. And I had watched it a million times before. <laughs> Deja vu. So the Doctor basically plays Time Lord God here, way oversteps any acceptable boundary in trying to negotiate that treaty. Unit commits genocide. The Silurians attempt to commit genocide and fail. Yeah, yeah. There are no clear-cut good guys and bad guys in this entire story. Yeah. I mean, even the director, who's this over-the-top, just wacko crazy. Yeah. But at the beginning, I mean, think about the business world of scientific research. That's the kind of person you have to have in order for a research facility to stay viable from a business perspective. He's not completely unbelievable before he goes wacko. Does yeah. the story have good guys and bad guys? Right. I mean, Right. Even the doctor completely end run around everyone. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of ingenious, really. Yeah, really good point. And in that sense, I think it's, it's very advanced. I tell you what was nice for me was to see Fulton Mackay actually get out and exercise his acting chops a little bit. I thought he was splendid in this. Fulton Mackay was, uh, I can't remember his name, Mr. McKay maybe, um, in Porridge. Um, he was in Going Straight as well. God, uh, if you, she was here, she'd know what I meant. Trust me. All right? <laughs> but it's, it was nice to see him get out. He's one of that sort of Zed Cars era of actors that I kind of overlooked and I'd forgotten he was in this. Great to see him, big smiling face, and he's got this whole sort of backstory going on where he likes to go potholing and shit like that, doesn't really want to be doing this job, blah, 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 that sort of works and spins it more. And that's the nice thing, I think, about having seven episodes, is you get a chance nowadays, it all rockets along so fucking quickly, you don't get a chance for the assistant and the doctor to stand in the garage and have a chat about bugger all, you know? Yeah. You don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. I miss that. Yeah, it's all a bit more two-dimensional nowadays. And that's lovely. It's, it's beautiful to see that. As I say, the experimental cuisine music just started to fuck me off after a while. And oh, the other thing that fucked me off, mm-hmm. the thing that fucked me off more than anything else was that fucking wobbly-headed young Silorian who talked by wobbling his head oh. like that. <laughs> and it was like that mask didn't quite fit and he just kept wobbling his head. And honestly, those two things bugged me more than anything else about this episode. Around this sort of time, you got two types of episode. You either got an alien invasion or a mad scientist because that's all you could really do on Earth. Right. Yeah. They, they were kind of committed to doing this. The Doctor is stuck on Earth by the previous production crew, mostly because the sets were so fucking expensive and all the costumes were so expensive. They had to kind of narrow it down a little bit. They dragged in the brig from the background, gave him good assistance, and built the unit family around him. That really is starting to build here because you're starting to see some of the other characters now. It's, it's a difficult one to do, but this isn't quite the mad scientist or the alien invasion in this one we're the invaders and I think that's quite yeah. a twist on the classic and it always stands out for me that in amongst you know all the other episodes of this era yeah. sorry sip of wine um, <laughs> it, it, yeah. <laughs> sorry it's a good moral dilemma story I mean full stop it's very Quatermass if you know your old British TV it's got that down to earth Quatermass feel and god love it it's the first proper appearance of Bessie and I adore <sighs> why have character options or, not, or any of the major figure creators never made a Bessie my Doctor Who figures that is the one thing I would love more than anything else another one came up for sale another Seaver Edwardian Roadster came up for sale recently for six and a half thousand I don't have six and a half thousand to spend on a Seaver Edwardian Roadster but there's only seven of them in the country and Gitty, Bessie they all have names Uh, absolutely beautiful cars Uh, but this is a classic four seater exactly like Bessie I was very very tempted for a little while just bang it on the credit card don't worry about it reasons to love Liz Shaw you guys have gone over it but you know she's very real out of all the assistants she is as you say the scientist making 
making suggestions. And okay, suggestions don't pay off. But the doctor's like, yeah, that's a fucking good idea. We'll add that to the mix and see if that looks good under the microscope. She's there driving the narrative. Yeah. Another thing that niggled me a bit, the brigadier's moustache is so clearly stuck on in this episode. It actually changes. Speaking as a man with a moustache and a beard, it actually changes three or four times. Almost the entire style of the moustache changes three or four times. And seems to be around his face investigating different nose and things. But honestly, I'm clutching at straws to find very much wrong with this episode. It really did, as I mentioned, kind of lay a foundation for a lot of the moral principles, I think, for a generation. Not everybody, because, you know, the world's full of dickheads that want us to come out of isolation. You know, just don't follow the science. But some of us, it taught us to follow science. And I'm not a scientist, but I have some common sense. And I'd like to think that some of that is born of this era of peeping out from behind the sofa at my nana and granddad's house, religiously watching Doctor Who. I put out a little shout on Facebook to some of our followers. So hello to Mark Cockrum. Hello to Joe Hadron. Hi, Joe. Always nice to hear from you. Uh, Mick Henderson thought it was a mediocre episode at best. And uh, Jeff Waddle, his review, ugly rubber-headed creatures awaken from a long sleep with an intent to take over the world. But they do very little and go back to sleep. Just say it's one of the better poetry ones. But something he says is the book is better. And that's true. The book is really good. I haven't read it for a very long time. But the Target book, they go into a lot of the history of the Silurians. Uh, and something Mark Cockrum raised, which was uh, Jeffrey Palmer's appalling attempt at social distancing in the middle of London. It's actually quite sobering and scary looking at it now, just how quickly mm-hmm. that virus takes hold and just like, he's talking yeah. to the ticket guy and the fucking London just falls over. <laughs> that whole train full of people is just like, no! driver, the hospital, you know. When the doctor's coming out, I'm a doctor, like, just get the fuck back. And the brig pulls a pistol on him, like, get the fuck back. <laughs> you can apply that to the modern day and go, oh, that's quite... I have a question. Didn't they basically say, oh, okay, we have to lock down this building with put this building on quarantine and then they allow that guy to like leave and go to London. I think the person that let him go didn't know yet. Is that anything like a world major power allowing its vice president to tour a medical facility without proper PPE? Just throwing that out there. (laughs) You know, I saw this episode the first time when I was a kid, of course. I don't even think I was 10 when I saw it for the first time. And I was pretty nerdy. I mean, I was, you know, a little kid watching Doctor Who. Mm. And I remember thinking at the time how stupid those people were. Like, I was criticizing the writing of the story. The story is really very prophetic. I mean, I didn't think as a kid that that people could be that dumb. And yet, if you look today, pretty much anyone in a position of power is living with impunity right now. Mm. And so many of the things that, yeah, I mean, they touched on it kind of over the top. A bacteria is not going to kill someone within a few hours, very unlikely. But they did the accelerator rated television pace you know mm-hmm. the within a couple minutes, there's people dropping like flies, but wow, it really is. If you take that half an hour, that one episode, and look at the past six to eight weeks here, wow, they really did a good job. It's true. So we better push on. This is probably going to be quite a short episode because the TARDIS doesn't actually appear, which means I don't have 40 minutes of send talking about the TARDIS to edit out. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off, sputters. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, we should probably roll the Can I give a shout out to the new adventure novel, Blood Heat? It kicks off a cycle of alternate universe stories in which the third doctor was killed in the Silurian prison in this episode. Wow. And it eventually ends with the seventh doctor's TARDIS being destroyed and him leaving, coming back to our universe 
in the alternate third Doctor's TARDIS. So that would be the oh the pie plate TARDIS from the Time Monster. It's a brilliant series of novels, probably my favorite out of the entire New Adventure cycle. And in this novel, the Silurians have taken over the Earth. The human race is devastated. They're slaves to the Silurians who are now mounting an empire. Wow. It is just brilliant. Logopolis. All right. Logopolis. Logopolis. Yes. Okay. Do you know what Logopolis is, Tabby? Not even slightly. You're up for a treat. You love it. <laughs> or you won't. We'll find yeah. out. Okay. So that just leaves quotes. Mine is from Liz. That's when she is at peak outrage. Haven't you heard of female emancipation? God. <laughs> that made me happy. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, he wants us to, to join him. Miss Shaw and the Doctor will report themselves forthwith to Wenleymore, attend a briefing, uh, meeting precisely. My dear Miss Shaw, I never report myself anywhere, particularly not forthwith. (laughs) I'll have you know this is a car of great character. I was very lucky to get her. Oh, so true. <laughs> oh, you know, I've been I've been a gearhead my entire life. For the doctor to have a car like that, oh, mm, mm, perfection. Well, mine's from the very end. It's my favorite part of the whole story. And there's a strange thing that happens where Liz tries to excuse the brigadier, but really, you know, he just took his own action as far as I'm concerned. Oh, you and don't know that. The look on his face. When the doctor was telling him, yeah, I'm going to go and, you know, have a party with the Silurians and all that. And he was just looking at him like, no, you're not. I'm going to fucking kill those people. And the doctor realizes that he's blown up all the Silurians and she's trying to excuse the brigadier. And the doctor goes, and you knew? And she's, no, the government were frightened. They just couldn't take the risk. But that's murder. They were intelligent alien beings, a whole race of them. And he's just wiped them out. And she's like, I know. I don't know. Pertwee always seems to get good ends to episodes. This really stands out for me in Green Death. Always stands out for me as well, where he just drives off into the sunset. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we better round it up here anyway. uh, We have been the Dirty Horse Doctor Who podcast. Hope you are too. Say goodnight, everybody. Good night, night. everyone. You've been listening to the Dirty Hooers Doctor Who podcast. Follow us on iTunes or DirtyHooers.com. Facebook and Twitter at Dirty Hooers. See you next time. We're not afraid to say it like it is. Or the word bollocks. Is, is that how you're going to do that? I, I I don't I never say the word bollocks. I'm well, sorry. Well, because you can't clearly. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> How should I say it? Bollocks? bollocks. 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 Okay. Okay. Tell me if I'm saying it right. Bollocks. It's better. Bollocks. 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 Okay. This literally is like herding cats now. <laughs>